Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. Hello, my friend. Oh, thank you. Hi, how are you? I'm feeling yeah. a little under the weather and I'm getting ready to go to Bali. So I'm feeling a oh. little uh, overwhelmed. Let's just say that. Actually, you're already in Bali. <laughs> Great. You've been, to, you've been in Bali for 10 days already, 11 days. Amazing. How was the flight? <laughs> I made it. I made it. <laughs> yeah. um, I do have a birth. Story. Well, just for people that don't know, we we always record about two weeks before the podcast is is released. So that's why yeah. we're joking. But you have a birth. So why don't you tell us about your birth? I do. I do have a birth story. So it was one of those situations that was a this darn law got in the way. So in California, as many of you have heard me talk about, 42 weeks is the limit as to what they've decided women can be pregnant and still have their provider at home. And because it's very birth, frustrating. birth is an on and off switch. <laughs> it's so frustrating because, you know, I do all of this work with these women to keep them, you know, relaxed and trusting birth and not worrying about it. And then we get to 41 weeks and then, I, you know, the stress starts. And so that's very unfortunate. So this woman, it was her third delivery. She delivered um, two previous births in Australia with midwives at a birth center. And she really wanted a water home birth this time. And she was always a little past dates with her other babies. And she said, you know, I always had to get a membrane sweep. And that's what got my labor going. And I was really hoping that we wouldn't have to do anything. And lo and behold, um, we got to 41 weeks and, and she was ready to, you know, start some things to get things going. So we did two membrane sweeps, acupuncture, two post-dates tests. BPs. And the second, the first one, the fluid looked normal. And the second one, the fluid looked below normal. And so the doctor that I usually send my clients to here basically told her, if you were my client, I would send you to the hospital right now. And I strongly suggest that you are in labor within, to have your baby within 24 hours. So she said, you know, I, I felt really comfortable and relaxed with everything that we had been talking about and doing, but that did, you know, put a little thing in my brain. You and think? I said, I totally, <laughs> I said, I totally understand. And we decided we were going to be doing castor oil on Saturday and we decided to move it up to Friday and just do it one day earlier because she was going to be 42 weeks on Sunday. And you know, it always works, but there was this little thing now in my brain. What if this doesn't work? You know, so she, I told her to text me when she took it and she took it at seven 30 in the morning, which was really early, but she was up with her kids. So she took her first dose at seven 30 in the morning. And then she, we texted, she took her second dose. Nothing was happening yet. And she's about 40 minutes from me driving. And so I checked in with her and she's like, Nope, nothing's happening yet. And I was like, okay. And then her husband texted me and said, I think something is starting because she is having some cramps and, um, but she thinks it might just be the castor oil. 
And I said, okay, well, I'm just going to like come over to Ventura and just be in that area just in case. And when I arrived, I texted them again and I said, hey, I'm in the area. I think I'll just go to a cafe. And then I kind of thought about it again. And I said, what do you think about me just coming by and setting up my equipment? And, you know, just in case things start like change quickly, um, we won't we won't be in a mad dash. And he says, yeah, that sounds good. Come over. Okay, so 10 minute drive from where I was to their house. I'm turning around the corner and he says, are you close? And I'm like, oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) So I go running in with my go bag, which is just basically a small bag that has everything that I would need for a delivery just in case for this exact kind of situation. And I walked in and she was um, definitely in active labor. And she said to me, I think the baby's coming. So I looked behind and definitely her perineum was bulging. And so I got on some gloves, didn't listen to one heart tone. And my assistant walked in like a few minutes after me and baby was born, I would say seven minutes, six, seven minutes after I arrived. So the best, those are the best births. Yeah, it was exactly an hour, by the way, from when she first had that first cramp that he thought might be it to when she had the baby. You know, I mean, it can be overwhelming for moms to have labor go that fast. And she did feel that kind of like you just got hit by a freight train. You know, you're like, what just happened to me? But she was so happy to not have yeah, to go. You said, you said something, you said something that, that I want to just clarify because you said you're talking about Castro and you said it always works and does it really always work? And and if it did work in this case, is it the cause of a one hour labor or if she had gone into labor on her own, would it have been a one hour labor? What's your thought on that? I'm knocking on wood because I don't want to jinx myself, but it, I have not had it not work yet, but I also do three days of preparation. So I didn't know Uh, we skipped a little step if it was going to work just the same. And it did. I do think that, the castor oil brings on contractions that are different than normal contractions. So I would assume that that really fast labor had to do with her having to be naturally induced. I'm doing quotes. And trust me, you guys, I would not want to be interfering with a woman's labor, but in giving her informed consent, you know, she'd much prefer doing this at home than being in a hospital environment and being on Pitocin and all of those other things. So anyway, yeah, it's it's a beautiful story. And I I love, those are my favorite births when you just walk in and, and you don't have time to start charting or doing all this stupid stuff. You just, just instinctively doing what you would do in any sort of setting where you're needed right away. Oh, there's, you know, there's a fire on the stove on your frying pan. Well, let's get out the manual and figure out what we, how we, how we're going to deal with that. No, no, we're going to just, just, just put it out. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you imagine if she planned a hospital birth and their doctor told her, well, get in the car and come to the hospital. <laughs> I had exactly. <laughs> it would have been a human interest story on the side of the highway. That's All right. right. We have a guest today, which we're going to get to in a few minutes. Dr. Joel, his nickname's Gator. Warsh is going to join us to talk a little bit about healthy children and and what it's like to be a pediatrician in California in 2023. Before we do that, I just have a couple things of my own. Was there anything else I wanted to be sure I exhausted all of your <laughs> desires to speak today before I, before I interrupted? Uh, no, thank you very much. Okay, well, just a couple of things here. Um, I have a... Several people wrote me this past week about... a 
an Instagram influencer who's got about 130,000 followers. She goes by the name of Babies After 35, and her name's Dr. Shannon Clark. And, you know, I watched a bunch of her videos, and some of them are quite funny, actually. And, and you know, some of them are like nails on a blackboard, however. And she did two that, uh, that people sent me. One was on the dangers of HBAC. And I just felt like, you know, my, my point to them was that she's only sees things through her own prism. And so many of us are stuck in that, uh, that hamster wheel. You know, we react to these pieces like that, and our reactions are predictable because our views are hardened over time. And uh, if you believe in the medical industrial complex, like, like she does, then you're going to see these things as being dangerous. And if you believe as we do, then what the medical industrial complex, as opposed to what the medical industrial complex thinks, then you see her videos as propaganda on the other side. And everybody becomes siloed. But I wanted to, you know, I'm not picking on her or giving her credit. She's just expressing her point of view for those people that saw that one on HBAC. But there is one that I am going to pick on. And that's one where she gives a story about a uterus didelphus. A uterus didelphus is a little, she has two uteruses. Uh-huh. And sometimes it even goes completely and you actually have two cervixes. You have to have two uterus didelphus. You definitely have two cervixes and you, and you can have a vaginal septum and you can actually have two vaginas right next to each other too. Only mm-hmm. one opening, but there's a septum that goes all the way down. Yeah. But anyway, the story was she was talking about a breech baby. And anytime you have a uterine anomaly, you're more likely to have a breech baby or, or what she called a malposition baby. But you and I know we don't like the term malposition because mal is Latin for bad. And it's not mm-hmm. necessarily bad. But she calls it a footling breech. And the baby's in an obvious complete breech position. She, she shows a picture of a baby in complete breech position. And because the foot is the thing that's below the butt, she calls it footling, even though the knees are bent and the hips are bent. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't really know the true definition of what a footling breach is. And then she goes on to use what the but, medical... Stu, can I interrupt you? That yeah. is something that's a very common, like, um, I don't know if I want to say error, but people do get that confused often, right? Footling... Doctors dis- doctor shouldn't. Yeah. I hear that often. I think when I did the breach training, they talked about this a lot. The other breach training with Breach Without Borders, they talked about this a lot too, that it's... that the the definition of footling sometimes is controversial or not very clear. You know, it's it seems pretty clear that a footling breach needs to be, hips and knees both need to be extended. But I understand so that. Basically, they're standing straight up. Yeah, right? pretty much. Yeah. So it and would be more it, in the case of a, um, a preemie. Preemie. Right? Correct. Yeah. It's very hard at term. But then she goes on to say, well, since the baby was term and the baby's membranes were ruptured, the best thing for this baby to have done at that time was a cesarean section. Mm -hmm. And you know how I feel about that. Right. I just want to make a statement that a uterus didelphus or a uterine septum or bicorneate uterus is not an indication for surgical birth. As a matter of fact, most women with a abnormally shaped uterus from, from birth will have head down vaginal deliveries. But even if they have a breech baby, they will still have term vaginal deliveries. There's a slight increased risk of preterm labor, a slight increased risk of placental implantation on on the septum, which can cause some problems. But when those things don't occur, the idea that you should take a baby that's in the position that this woman demonstrated on her her Instagram page and say that the best thing for this baby was to have a C-section, She's saying that because in her, I think in her world, and again, I don't know her personally, but I think in her world, that's the only option that's offered right. to these women. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I just want to make the point that that people, we all have our our biases and our views, and we espouse them. So I think the lesson here from people listening to us is that we have our bias, but take everything with a grain of salt. And don't get too offended when someone says something that is completely uncomfortable for what the position that you have, because that you don't have to take it personally. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to get really upset about somebody who says something like that. Yes, she's influencing people in probably the wrong way. I mean, some of her videos, she's she's right on, but this one in particular, and then the, the ragging on home home birth after cesarean was also sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, distasteful. Mm-hmm. Did you just blow on me? <laughs> I was just trying to blow something off. <laughs> Nobody can see that, but I could see what you just did. Oh, that's that's interesting. Well, we have a Google Voice that we wanted to play real quick. Should we do that real quick? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to play that and see how that works. Maybe our producers can substitute some good sound in here. And also remind people what the number is. So we've started a new contact way to contact us. And we have a designated email, which is birthinginstinctspodcast at gmail.com. And then we have a place where you can leave voicemails. So we do have a guest today, so we're not going to get too far into this, but we wanted to play one that is just happy story. Yeah, it's an the Google Voice number is 805-399-0439. And this is from uh Krista. Hello Dr. Sue and Bliss. My name is Krista. I was just calling to give you guys a huge thank you. I've been listening to your podcast religiously for probably about a year and a half now. After the birth of my first daughter, I wanted to have a completely different birth experience. I had the typical medically indicated induction at 37 weeks due to gestational hypertension. And though it was a really positive induction experience, I knew I wanted to be included. So finding your podcast was immensely valuable to me and my journey to my second baby girl. And I'm very happy to report that I gave birth seven weeks ago, completely spontaneous, uninterrupted, very fast progression of labor and thankfully I made it through my birth center in town where my water broke and my baby was born 30 minutes later in a lovely water birth and as I fantastic midwife and nurse. So really you guys are just incredible to the community. I'm so thankful for you and I make sure to share all of your stuff and get other people aware that you know we don't have to just succumb to the norm and that there are plenty of other options with pretty much every day I feel like at this point is what a difference this is making for families and pregnant women you know I think that for me I thought that this podcast was going to be much more about talking to providers and practitioners I agree with you Bliss I mean it's important that again that was sort of um, you know self-promoting for you and me it just makes us feel good to see stories like that but we get a lot of those stories and it's really important that the word is getting out there there's even a little cynicism when she says, uh, you know, a medically indicated induction at 37 weeks. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So thank you, Krista, for doing that. I would ask people who do call in with the Google Voice to try to keep it short. You get cut off at three minutes, but we really love your comments to be like 30 to 60 seconds. That would be great. So Bliss, let's talk about one of our sponsors, Needed, and all their great products. 
Yeah. And I uh, hope you guys caught the episode with, um, with Julie, where we talk all about her births and relationship and how she developed this company. Because, you know, Stu and I are really particular about how who we bring on to partner with. And Needed is an amazing company. And they have really put a lot of effort into making sure that you guys are getting amazing, good quality products. And we want to pass that on to you. One of the things that I really love about Needed's line, besides the attention to detail, is that they do have a powdered prenatal vitamin for those of you who, you know, maybe don't really like to take pills or are feeling nauseous. And it's something that you can add into a smoothie with beautiful collagen protein that they have available as well and and get you need and then they also have that amazing line of uh, men's products too and preconception partnering the preconception before you're actually even pregnant so and then what about this new product that they just yeah well you first of all go to this is needed.com and check out their whole menu of different items and, and pick out the ones that seem the, to fit your needs, but they have a new one. It's called Egg Quality Support. It's for women considering getting pregnant. And it combines five targeted and optimally dosed antioxidants to improve egg quality and support related fertility outcomes. This is one of the only egg quality products and the only egg quality support on the market that does not contain overlapping ingredients you'll find in a prenatal like folate. In addition, we've created our egg quality support plan to even further optimally nourish those trying to conceive. The egg quality support plan pairs our new egg quality support with our standalone CoQ10 in the active antioxidant form Ubiquinol. So try their new product and try all their old products and support them because they support us and go to to thisisneeded.com. Use the code word birthing instincts, all caps, and you'll save 20% off one-time order or the first three-month subscription at thisisneeded.com, code word birthing instincts. Thanks, Needed. Thanks, Needed. We have a guest, and Joel Gator Warsh is a pediatrician in Los Angeles. And since I don't really have your bio in front of me, because I don't think you sent it, (laughs) (laughs) um, can you introduce yourself? Because I think you're really well well known in LA, but probably not necessarily all over the world, like our listeners. Sure. Yeah, I'm an integrated pediatrician. I trained at a allopathic great medical program, but I got a little bit frustrated with the regular system, super short visits, medications for everything. So that's what led me to start learning about natural medicine and integrated medicine and taking functional medicine courses and, and things like that. I'm not against Western medicine at all. I just think that there's a time and a place and we're really out of balance these days. And, and it's, you know, kind of like everything alternative is woo-woo and everything in medicine is like, you know, the best thing ever, but really that's not the way that it is. There's a lot of balance and, and there really needs to be a lot of overlap and, and working together. It's really just not the way that things are. So that's kind of my practice life. And then online, I run a website, Raising Amazing Plus, where I have lots of courses and, and programs for parenting. And then a lot of people find me on Instagram, uh, Dr. Joel Gator. That's where I'm most active. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll put up all your links uh, in the show notes for people to get to. But I think that Bliss and I wanted to have you on because partly because of your Instagram presence and the wonderful memes and things that you put up all the time. <laughs> and we've got some that we want to go over with you. But Tell us a little bit more about your website and about this, the thing that people can sign up for that's integrative, you know, this integrative medicine, because a lot of people have never heard the term integrative medicine. So explain that. Integrative medicine, and it's hard because there's not one definition, but to me, it means balancing the best of Western medicine and alternative practices and, and doing whatever is best for the patient on the day. And there's so many alternative 
modalities out there like supplements and homeopathics and Eastern medicine. So, you know, people have like acupuncture, but those were things that were woo-woo many years ago and they're maybe coming into mainstream a little bit more. But for me in the office, when I work with patients, I try to balance both and offer both and, and do medication if you need it, but just try to minimize using that medication as much as possible. So that to me is what integrative medicine is. And through my website and courses and things that I speak about, I try to bring that in. Like I have one course that's holistic pediatrics and we talk about common pediatric things that you would come across like coughs and colds and runny noses and flu and stomach aches, but how you might approach those integrative sense. So there's still the medical stuff, but then what other modalities are out there that you might want to explore, discuss with your practitioners and, and maybe do for your own, for yourself or your children. Do, do, do healthy children from, from like newborns on who are, you know, maybe two, three months old, do healthy children who would say are, are not planning to go on some sort of vaccine schedule or anything like that, do they need to come in and see a pediatrician on a regular basis or because we always debate this stuff is like, well, why, why is a healthy child going to the doctor? Why is a healthy woman getting a pap smear every year? Because you and I were trained or I was, and probably you were too trained in the medical model where, mm-hmm. you know, we always did things sort of algorithmically and we just, we never questioned it, but obviously our audience <laughs> questions a lot <laughs> of things. So I wanted to curious about what you think about whether does a healthy kid need to go to the pediatrician? I I think it's a good idea to go in every now and again, for sure. I I think that pediatricians are trained to catch things, right? That parents are not trained to catch. And so the the value, especially of the the well check, is to have a discussion, look into things, look at the height and the weight. You know, as I get older, check blood pressure. You're doing an exam. You're looking for developmental milestones, all these things. So there are certainly, um, when you're talking about a younger kid, parents tend to have a lot of questions. And it's a good time to ask those questions. So rarely is there a visit in the first six months to a year where parents have zero questions. So the well checkup in that sense, it's valuable because you get your questions answered at that time. You know, if you were to book visits in between and ask your questions, I guess that's fine. But the job of the pediatrician for the well check is to catch things. So most of the time, do you actually need to go in? Probably not, right? They're probably not going to catch anything if your child is healthy, but the doctor's job is to catch that one in a million thing or to ask questions or they, you know, they notice a mole or they notice something and, and that kind of spurs you to do more. So that's where I think there's the most value in the, in the checkups. Do we need as many visits in the first couple of years as they have? Probably not if you're healthy and not doing you know, all the other things, but I think like as you get older, one check a year, is, that's, that's reasonable or one check every other year. Yeah. And I think, I think because of your nature and I, I know how you practice, I think like you have the ability to individualize your care. And so some people obviously need to come in and they need to come in more because there's other issues going on. And some people don't. It's the same thing in my practice when I was doing office gynecology and stuff. You know, we always made women come every year for pap smear because that's how we were trained. And my mm-hmm. partner in the office was having women come every six months. And it wasn't because he wanted to make money. I mean, sometimes that, that's a motivation for making people come in. He just, that's what he always did. And when I challenged him one time, I said, why are you doing that? And he hesitated. <laughs> he goes, that's just the way, you know, that it's done. And I said, well, George, how often do you find something that the woman wasn't coming in complaining about? And he says, almost never. I mean, almost everything that we find in a doctor's office, at least in in, in the adult level, is somebody coming in telling us there's something wrong. It's really rare that we find something in somebody perfectly healthy on a routine thing. So I was just always curious about that because part of me is is backing far away from what I used to you know, how I used to practice. And you are yeah, sort of in that. But, but I think with kids, you, you do catch things. I mean, you definitely do catch things more frequently, especially with developmental 
milestones, environmental things. And, and I also think that, and I would hope, and I mean, obviously this isn't the way that it is, but we would move more in medicine towards a lot more discussion around prevention because there's actually a lot that you could and should be doing during those you know, first two years of visits in terms of talking about diet and, and exercise and, and those kinds of things where there, there's enough that you could be making those visits very valuable given where we're going with chronic disease and where we're going with obesity epidemic, where that, that time could probably be better used in general, having more discussions and kind of giving parents the information that they need. We're not, we're not doing nearly enough of that, but I think of those, it's like a dentist, you go and you don't necessarily know your kid has a tooth issue, but they catch cavities all the time, right? So we do catch things. Absolutely. But I think to your question of, do you need to come in as frequently as you do? Probably not. And some of my patients don't. So my patients, you know, we, we don't force people to come in. We have the regular schedule. That's kind of more based on insurance, I guess, is, is you know, what visits they, they recommend. And, and just like you said, it's like, well, this is what you've always done, but, but kids that are very healthy, especially when the parent is like, you know, it's their second, third, fourth kid, and they know what they're doing. Then sometimes, you know, I say, like, oh, okay, well, everything's fine. You know, we can skip the next visit if you want to, or you can come in if you want to. It's that I don't think that's unreasonable. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I find that a lot of the clients that we work with, and it sounds like, you know, the way that we look at health and medicine is very similar. Mm-hmm. A lot of our clients are very informed and educated and, you know, they don't necessarily need us to answer all of those questions. They just need someone to be there if they're worried about something or if something's beyond what they can comprehend. So I get yeah. I get asked this a lot actually. And it's interesting in LA, I've moved to Santa Barbara now, but in LA, in order for someone to register for a birth certificate in Los Angeles County, they need note from the doctor, a mm-hmm. pediatrician basically. And here in Ventura County and Santa Barbara, they don't. So when people ask me, do I really need to see a pediatrician? I'm like, no, not unless there's a reason that we, you know, have something that we're concerned about, but it is nice to have somebody that you know that you can call. So setting up a relationship with a pediatrician so that you have somebody that you trust and is aligned with your values can be a really nice thing. Cause I'm only, you know, I'm nor I take care of low risk, normal mom and babies, right? But if anything goes outside of that scope, they're going to want to have somebody who they trust to be able to connect with. So yeah, I actually get that question a lot from parents in the interview. Yeah, we, we get a lot of patients that come from from midwives and, and home births and things like that. And mm-hmm. and I echo that answer. And I just tell them, look, it's, it's kind of up to you. You know, obviously, if there are issues or concerns, you definitely want to get checked sooner than later. But if everything is you know, well and, and healthy, then it's kind of up to you when you do the first visit. I think it's not unreasonable to get a pediatrician check within the first few days because I just think that pediatricians are trained differently than midwives, just like pediatricians are trained different than OB. So we're trained to see different things and do different things. There's no reason that you can't get two different sets of eyes on it. It never hurts to do that, in my opinion. But I think that especially midwives are very well trained in taking care of babies for those first couple of days and, and noticing things. So I don't I don't think if everything is well and healthy, then then there is a huge concern. But again, that that's still a different level of training. And there are some doctors, especially that have great training in like newborn nursery. And, and they're probably going to pick up things that a midwife may or may not because, you know, midwives, OBs are trained in giving birth mostly and pediatricians are trained in taking care of babies. So it's just different, but there's yeah. a lot of lab. Different training. Yeah. Well, um, you know, one of the reasons why we reached out to you as um, Stu, Dr. Stu was mentioning to you is because I just really appreciated your speaking out and being more open and vocal on Instagram about what you're seeing in children. And 
you you noted obesity, autism, eczema, allergies, autoimmune conditions. What what are you seeing as the causes in this increase? Yeah, so I mean, let's go let's go back a little bit in terms. I mean, I'm sure your listeners know you know kind of some of this stuff, but what I've been focused a lot on the last few months and, and years is really talking about chronic disease because the chronic disease rates are skyrocketing and in, in adults and in kids, but kids especially, we're seeing numbers like around 50% of kids have a chronic disease, meaning something that they're dealing with lifelong or, or daily where they might be taking a medication. So just like you said, like eczema, asthma, allergies, obesity, you know, there's a long list of, of different things that can go into that category. And the numbers just keep going up and up and up. And it's terrifying. And yet nobody's really doing anything about it. I mean, we are meeting with the obesity. There was this whole, you know, recent thing with the American Academy of Pediatrics. And there was some at least identification that there is a problem, but there's really still no or very little discussion on what's going on and how do we prevent it. It's just how we treat it. And so that that's what really frustrates me because this is such a huge problem. We're talking about one out of two kids has a chronic disease. That's insane. And we're not spending our focus on, well, how do we come together to fix this problem? How do we come together to move it in a different direction? Because then, you know, every kid's going to have a chronic disease in a few years if we don't do something about it. So that's kind of the, the backstory on that. And then in terms of what do we do? Well, I mean, it's a big problem, right? It's very absolutely multifactorial. There's no one one simple answer. But to me, the biggest two factors that are controllable are food and, and nutrition and the vitamins and nutrients that we're getting and, and toxins that we're being exposed to. So I, I think that our food is shitty. People are not eating appropriately. Even if you think you're eating healthy, you're not eating nearly as healthy as you probably were 20, 30 years ago because the food is just deficient in nutrients. We're not getting things from gardens anymore. Very little is locally produced. So you lose a lot of that nutritional value when it's picked early and shipped across the country. And then, you know, not to mention all the, the sugar and processed foods and and chemicals and dyes and all those other things and you know the, the fancy packaging labels and that we get for convenience, but you lose all the nutritional value or there's really very minimal nutritional value. So you have you know that one side of things and, and we're, we're literally built of what we eat. So if we don't have the nutrients, then how are we going to function properly? And then you mm-hmm. add to that the exposure of more and more and more chemicals where you know we're, we're breathing in air that's more toxic. We're drinking water that's more toxic. We're spraying chemicals on everything, on our clothes on our bodies, you know, all those things. So we're, it's this mix of just increasing inflammation because we just don't have the ability to handle all the toxins that we're being exposed to mixed with just not having a good baseline of, of nutrition. And so that to me is, I think, the two biggest factors and the things that we actually could do something about if we really, really wanted to. Yeah, I, I think that there's other things too. I mean, from our perspective, I mean, our, our I, I think that the idea that Autoimmune disorders in children and, and illnesses in children are is pretty well known in our in our listening audience um, because people follow people like Paul Thomas and some of the other people that have that have published on this sort of thing. But from our perspective, we also have the idea that our C-section rate has risen 500% in the last 50 years, affecting the microbiome, which I think probably goes along with your toxin category of not, you know, not getting exposed to the right things, not only getting exposed to the wrong things, but not getting exposed to the right things. You know, then we talk about 5G and all the Bluetooth radiation, the stuff we get in Siri and everybody else in your house and all these getting bombarded by all these things and kids staring at screens all day long. And, you know, one topic we're we're probably not going to talk about today, at least you and I, because 
I understand the situation, but there are injectable things that kids are getting that that keep getting more and more, and that also can lead to mm -hmm. that problem. And and you know, so our immune systems are not, and people are playing indoors. They're not. They're not exposed to things. You know, they're they're not outside. Especially last few few years, there's been a real decrease in the uh, challenging of your immune system. Can you and can you speak to that? Have you seen significant changes because of the lockdowns and stuff uh, that where kids weren't in school? Did you see a big change? Because I know you did a post uh, recently about respiratory syncytial virus, which I want to get to mm -hmm. too, but. But can you can you speak to that? Yeah, first of all, I would say definitely. I agree with everything that you said 100%. I you know, when I'm when I mentioned, you know, the first stuff it's like, yeah, there's so many there's so many things that kind of go into it. I agree with C-sections, I agree with with you know, all the wireless technology and things. There's just so much that are we're being exposed to that we just don't even have the beginnings of an understanding of how it all works together. So, yeah, I, I agree with that. Then when it comes to our immune systems in general, what we forget often maybe not your audience but what, what so many people forget often is is we're meant to be exposed to you know viruses and, and bacteria we're, we're built of these things and you know you go outside in the middle of the winter and and everybody's you know, sick around you or lots of people are sick around you but you don't get sick most of the time i mean that's what your immune system is for and if you're being exposed to things then you're not trying to go out there and lick doorknobs and and trying to get sick right but you not frozen you, doorknobs you, at least for sure yeah, not frozen doorknobs anyways but you want your kids to get sick. You just don't want them to get very sick, right? You want them to get a little cold. You want them to be exposed to it. You want their body to fight it off. I mean, that's a good thing. You just don't want them to end up in the hospital. So you want them to build a strong immune system. And the best way to do that is to be exposed to things consistently and your body learns how to deal with it. And what happened over the last few years was kids were not exposed to each other. We did basically everything that's the opposite of what we know in terms of health. So it was just like you said, staying inside. So we weren't getting enough sunlight and vitamin D. We were watching more screens. We were eating worse. We weren't sleeping well. Everybody was stressed. So all the things that we know through all of the research for the last hundred years or, or longer that are bad for our immune systems, we did all those things. And so, you know, it's not a surprise that our immune systems went went in the tubes, but then also just kids weren't exposed to things. I mean, when we talk about RSV, like you mentioned, the statistics show that about 90% of kids have had RSV before they're two, if you, if you check their antibodies. So kids didn't get that in the last couple of years because they weren't exposed to each other. So we're then shocked when after everybody gets back together that there's a lot more RSV. Now, well, you know, there's zero to four year old kids that now need to get exposed to RSV and do. And, and, and there were just uh, many, 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 many more viruses and kids were sick like crazy for, you know, it's coming now, but but really the whole end of last year was quite crazy. Usually it's very calm and quiet in the office during the holidays, but it was nuts because everybody was sick with coughs and colds and were you know, going in circles, especially kids that went to daycare because it was just being passed around. Now, was it significantly worse? Was I seeing a lot of kids that were extremely ill? No, I wasn't. I don't think it was severely worse in terms of severity. I, I just think it was much more frequent because the bodies were not exposed to it and people were, were passing it around and kids were passing it around. And I I think that in the long run, it's those kinds of things will hurt children in the long run because it's affecting our immune system and our bodies in general. But kids are pretty resilient. We're talking about young kids. You know, they get coughs and colds, they get over it. But I I think that where the harm is is just in the general health because we should have learned this over the last couple of years that with COVID, we know the absolute number one thing that was the major risk factor was comorbidities, right? If you were obese, if you had other, you know, issues going on in your life that that made you much more susceptible to getting severely ill. But that's not new news. I mean, I don't know why this was like so surprising. This is true of everything. If you have cancer, you know, you're much more likely to get 
very sick. If you have an autoimmune condition, you're much more likely to get sick. If you have diabetes, you're much more likely to get sick from whatever virus. That's always true. And so now we're, we're I mean, I hope this became more, I guess, in. I hope people realize this a little bit more now, but it's not enough, I think, to make people change what they're doing. Maybe some people did, but we need to do something to get people to wake up and change the trajectory. And it's not just that. It's it's gonna it's gonna have to be bigger than that. I mean, we need people to do it on an individual level because nobody's doing it on the the macro level at this point. But we also need to have government or, or you know policy changes where we make food healthier and available and local and the good food to be cheaper. And you know, you want change the obesity epidemic well you have to make you want to get the kids into like programs things well it has to be available it has to be covered we have to make the insurance companies cover it like it has to be something that they can actually go and do and well, there has to be the motivation to actually want to do that and the problem with our government and the government regulatory agencies and things like that is they're they're sort of they have no desire to do the things that you're talking about because no one i know it's cynical i don't know if you listen to our podcast a lot but this is what <laughs> but there's there's no financial incentive correct but, but there, there, there is. They need to. I think they need to get the understanding that there, there is an incentive, financial and just long-term health of their country. <laughs> you know, of their countries. Like, if they want to have healthy people in thirty years, then they're going to have to do something about it. And you know, even and even just, I mean, all these, you know, politics, politicians, they're people, right? At the end of the day, they're people, and they still have kids, right? And and they're still going to have kids. And did they want their kids to be unhealthy? You know, at some point, it's going to get to the point where enough politicians even their kids are going to be so unhealthy yeah gonna... but joel but joel they're not going to they're not going to rely on the government to do to some program they're just going to do it because themselves because they can afford to do it that's true i mean that, that's that i think that's an issue but i but i mean i was what was frustrating with me with reading the new guidelines was i wish that the pediatricians would have come out and not just talked about not just focused in those new articles on treatment and surgery i get it those are fine if you need it but it would have i wish we would do something like pediatricians coming together and saying, look, we're not going to continue to take insurance unless you guys cover this stuff. It's that big a deal. You know, we're, we're not going to, we need to get together and, and we need to change this and make sure that food is healthier and cheaper. Like it has to be something where it's like a group, something like doctors or whoever it's going to be that comes together and says like, look, we are identifying this as a major problem. It must be changed. We're not going to shut up until you, until you do that. And like, that's a thing that could be done. I mean, doctors, yeah, no, no, it, it is. It's just it certainly not good, but the American Academy of Pediatrics, like ACOG or like the AMA, you know, their primary uh, mission is not necessarily what you and I think it should be. I agree. Uh, I, I know it's not easy, and I'm not. I'm not surprised. I'm just saying, like, if we want it to change, that to me is the only way it's going to change. It has to be. People have to do it themselves right now if they want to actually make the change. But if we want to, if we want to see a real change in a, in a country, then it's going to have to be bigger than that. It, it has. It has to be not cheaper to buy shitty food like how about just, how about a new organization altogether i mean that would be great but even then you know that's gonna take 20 30 years to, to build and to, to grow and then to get funding and then they can you know go off on their own direction and do their own bad things it's like well i think we, that's happening though i think that those things are coming because i don't think some of these yeah things are gonna yeah I, I agree well, I, mean, I think new organizations need to be built to counteract some of the ones that are there but i also still think that the heart of it doctors are good people and they want to help people. And I think the system is just absolutely destroyed medicine in general. And, and there, I, I really don't think that any pediatrician went into medicine to like not help kids, you know, it's just about how and how busy they are and what they could do. And I do think that if, if the right thing was set up to kind of move the pendulum forward and it was built in that way, then it would be possible. People will get behind it. Pediatricians want kids to be healthy. I don't think we're 
we have a medical model right now that's set up for that. I think we have a medical model set up to treat you. It's not to prevent. Couldn't have said that any better. Liz? Oh, I was just wondering if you felt like you were didn't have a lot of peers that supported your perspective, because I know, you know, working so closely with Dr. Stu, you know, and feeling like wants to advocate for change within his profession. I feel like what I'm hearing you talk about is not something that's very common amongst doctors. And I wondered, wondered if you were feeling kind of alienated and alone in this endeavor. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't say I feel alone, but it's definitely like not the norm. You know, the mm-hmm. more that I talk about things and the more that I've been out there on Instagram, the more people that will message me. And it's mostly younger doctors, you know, people mm-hmm. that are starting, people that are in medical training, young pediatricians are like, oh, you know, this is so exciting. Like, I love what you're saying. You know, I agree with you. You know, By and large, younger doctors are realizing that something's not working and, you know, maybe they don't know what to do about it, but they'll message me and be like, hey, like, what books could I read? How do I learn about holistic medicine? I, I, I think that well, I know that holistic medicine has gotten a bad name over the years because of the really out there providers that have, you know, then, then the doctors kind of quote those things like, oh, look what the snake oil salesman did, whatever. But integrative medicine is not woo woo. There's no reason that some of the stuff can't be in regular medicine. And it already is. It's just really slow. I mean, you look at acupuncture is the best example. You know, that was not normal 20 years ago. And now it's in pretty much every hospital and they're using it instead of pain control. And, and most medications come from natural medicine. I mean, that's where they started. They're from, you know, tree bark or whatever, like aspirins, willow bark, right? So it's it's not woo-woo. It's just that doctors need evidence and getting evidence is hard in medicine because it comes from pharmaceutical companies for the most part. So you don't have the level of evidence that you have in natural medicine. And that makes it tough to get through. But at the same time, there is lots of evidence for a lot of these things like elderberry syrup and, and vitamin D and zinc. And, and so I hope that over time, we will start to move forward and get some of these things into medicine. Because also most doctors, like they don't want to prescribe antibiotics. It's just what they have, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's the option that they have, but most doctors want to have antibiotic stewardship. They get that. They don't want to prescribe antibiotics when they don't need to. But how many kids get antibiotics when they don't need them? You know, it's like most of the time. Salty AF. I have my salty AF water bottle here. Um, <laughs> Element is one of our sponsors, LMNT. And they are a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the BS, like us. Like us. Right. I love when you say that. It's, I look forward to it every week. It's got electrolytes in it, which is what you really need when you need a, a replenishment, when you're sweating, when you're working out, when you're in labor, when you've been up for 80 hours uh, <laughs> taking care of somebody in labor. Yeah. It would have been good. You might have been more refreshed if you would have had your element. And I probably would have. Right. It's really good for those sorts of situations. And it's and uh, it, it's so much better than some of the other drinks which have sugar or other fake sugars or things in them, as you know, that I drink. I shouldn't, but I do. So um, and it comes in multiple flavors. Bliss's favorite is uh, uh, mango chili and mine is raspberry, mm-hmm. but it comes in. Let's see, I think I got to memorize now citrus and raspberry. Well, raspberry is my favorite and um, orange and lemon habanero and uh, watermelon, watermelon, unflavored, unflavored and chocolate salt. Right. Anyway, if you go to drinkelement.com, that's drinkelement.com and put in the code word birthing instincts, you'll get a free sample pack with any order. Uh, Please uh, support them as they support the podcast. And we just want to send our gratitude to them. Thank you, Element. Thanks, Element. We were hoping that maybe you could talk a little bit about why 
from your perspective, why you would want to minimize antibiotics in children? Because it's something we talk about in pregnancy, but just, just a little bit on that would be great. Yeah. From a societal standpoint first, more that you use antibiotics, the more that the bacteria become resistant to it. So eventually it just become useless. So that's the antibiotic stewardship on the, the greater scale. But from a, you know, from a personal standpoint, one, you don't want to take a medicine if you don't need it, right? There's always the potential for side effects and any antibiotic, it kills bacteria, right? So it's killing the bad stuff, but it's also killing the good stuff. It affects your gut microbiome, affects the bacteria that are in your gut. And you have this you know, perfect environment in there and you, you muck it up and who knows what kind of consequences you're going to get from that, depending on which antibiotic you're on and how long you're on, on it for. But getting a side effect is not that uncommon, like stomach aches, diarrhea, those, those kinds of things. It doesn't mean you can't take an antibiotic and be just fine, but, but there are, there are, consequences to anything that you do. There's there's pros and cons. You have to weigh the pros and the cons. If you have a bad pneumonia, it's going to kill you. Well, you should probably take your antibiotic, right? That's, okay. that's out, outweighing the potential risk of having a little bit of gut upset. But if you give your kid every time they have a cold or every time their ear hurts a little bit, or every time they have a little bit of a red eye and antibiotic, and now you're two years old and you've taken 10 courses of antibiotics, well, don't you think that probably affects your body somehow if you continually you know, send a nuke into your body, kill the good bacteria, and you keep throwing things off every couple of weeks? It's not a good thing, right? There's no way that's a good thing. And, and that's probably one of the precursors to long-term illness and chronic disease. I'm sure throwing off your body consistently is one of the reasons why you see more and more chronic disease. It's not the only reason, but it's definitely a factor, I'm sure. And you definitely see, if you look at the studies, the kids that are on multiple or even one course of antibiotic have higher risk of eczema allergies, but those kinds of things. And, and anytime, even if, any, yeah. anytime you do an intervention like that, there are going to be ripple effects downstream. You might see them, might not see them right away over time. And we talk about that with antibiotics in, in labor and pregnancy and the microbiome. We already mentioned that earlier. You probably don't remember this, Joel, because you were probably in elementary school at the time. But when I was a resident, there was a paper that came out or a study that came out that looked at um, the psychology of, of, of medicine, how we practice. And they had people come in with a ailment that was probably viral, like upper respiratory infection. Mm -hmm. And one, in one group, they spent less than five minutes with the physician and the physician wrote a prescription for an antibiotic. The other group spent about 20 minutes with a physician who then explained to them why this is viral and an antibiotic isn't going to be helpful, that sort of thing. Then they surveyed the people afterwards and they asked them who were the better physicians. And about 75% said that the person that gave them a piece of paper that gave them some medicine was mm -hmm. the better physician. So this, there's two things about that. One is that the system doesn't allot time, unless you're a private practitioner like you, it doesn't give you the time in a, in a managed care system or an HMO type thing where you have that time to talk, spend 20 or 30 minutes explaining to somebody why they don't need an antibiotic when, their mm -hmm. ear, when the baby's ear is just a little bit red or they have a little bit of pink eye, as you described in one of your Instagram posts. And the other thing is that, that people want to be fixed. Mm -hmm. They want something. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. so they, um, they, they're happy with getting a prescription, even if it's not the right something, because they feel like they're taking it and there's probably a placebo effect from that as well. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that, that's what I think exactly is that when a parent goes to the doctor, they're going because their child is sick or something's going on and, and they wanted to do something to fix it. fix it. And getting a prescription is something that they could do. And for the most part, for doctors, the only thing they have in their toolbox is antibiotics or is a prescription. So that's what they give them. And exactly like you said, I've said this many, many times, it's, it takes a lot longer to explain why you don't need a prescription than why you do. It's much easier to say, okay, you're paying, here you go. Here's your prescription, get out of here. But 
that's not how it works in a lot of places. I mean, you have only like three minutes, but you, you really need at least 10 or 20 minutes to unconvince somebody that they need an antibiotic. And, and above that, you have to have follow-up, right? For some of these clinics, it's really hard to get in. It's really hard to go back. It's really hard to connect with the practitioner because if you are, somebody's coming to me and they have a little bit of a beginnings of a pink eye, or they have a little bit of ear pain, are the two easiest examples, then if it's just starting, they don't need an antibiotic, but they might. They might need an antibiotic. That, that's the key, right? You don't know if you need it in that first half of day or a day because almost all the time, I mean, you look at the statistics, like 90% plus are going to be viral. So it should get better on its own in the next two or three days. But you have to have access to be able to call back and say like, oh, you know what? Actually, Johnny's ears are, are killing now and he has high fevers and he's miserable and it's been two and a half days and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. Then you have to be able to get rechecked. So they'll be like, okay, yeah, you do need antibiotics. But but a lot of people go in in that first day or, or second day where you don't need it. And you have to understand that you giving them that antibiotic is worse than, than not. And you have time and you have to be able to explain, okay, here's what you should watch for. Here's what you need to come back in for. Here's when we would do an antibiotic. And you have to get that whole understanding of, of the system of, of what to watch for. Because, you know, I guess what scares physicians like when you go to urgent care or whatever is they don't want to get sued because they miss something and then some crazy thing happens right and then and then you know, your eardrum bursts and then you blame them for not giving you an antibiotic like that's that's how medicine is practiced these days it's like oh well we'll give you the antibiotic it's, it's better it's safer it covers my butt but that's not actually good for your kid yeah. what's good for your kid is to actually get what they need which which a lot of times is nothing most of the time it's nothing most of the time when your kid is sick they don't need anything i've seen it so clearly between working in the hospital and the old practices and what I used to do versus what I do now, where, you know, medicine was antibiotics were given out like candy when you're working in a, a huge clinic that's underfunded and then you're just seeing 20 patients an hour versus now might give out an antibiotic like once or twice a month for yeah. all the patients. Like it's so rare that you, you need it. And even then when you're giving it out half the time, they don't end up taking it. It's more like here, you know, you're kind of on the verge. So here's your prescription. See if it doesn't get better. You can call me if you need to, whatever. Like it's so rare to need an antibiotic that I have to look up the dose now because I don't remember because I don't give it very often versus before I just like, it was off by heart. I could just like, okay, you know, here's the, the five antibiotics. It's just a different mentality, but it's not like all the kids in my office are just going to hospital all the time or getting super sick or having their ears burst out of their face or something like that. Like it's, it's, it's just not needed because it's viruses. That's just how the world is. I mean, just look at the stats. <laughs> yeah. And may I ask you, are you, do you take insurance? We take insurance, take the major PPOs. Yeah. You do, but you're still able to get that individualized care. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, we have like a hybrid model. So we, we have a, a yearly fee, but, but we, we take the major PPOs as well, which for me, I've tried to do that and, and stick to that method because insurance is just so expensive. And for kids, especially there's a lot of you know, and things that they might do an x-ray, whatever that you might have to get that gets super expensive for kids. So I'd rather them use their insurance if they can. So we've tried to kind of bounce between the two, but it is hard. I mean, it still makes it hard because it still constrains you to some degree because you, you don't have to see as many patients as other offices do, but you still can't like see, you know, one patient an hour. <laughs> yeah. So it's like a concierge service where you're yeah. all your clients pay you a certain yeah. amount and that helps you financially be able to do both of those things, accept insurance and right. maybe get a little bit more of the individualized care that you wouldn't if you were just taking insurance. Yeah, correct? exactly. Because we do stuff outside of insurance that they don't cover. So I could yeah. yeah. And so this goes back to the system really being broken. So even if you've got doctors who really want to do this, inform, educate, you know, spend time, talk about preventative care, 
most of the time, we're not able to do that because of the constraints of the system. Yeah. I mean, the system is wildly broken. Even if you just want to operate a regular practice and don't care at all about integrated medicine, it's all, it's getting nearly impossible to stay open. I mean, yeah. 20, 25% of pediatric lab is closed during the pandemic, right? I, there, there, there's no po- almost no possible way to operate a private practice moving forward if, if things don't change. I mean, the insurance companies don't pay you more, but everything in, is going up in price, right? Uh, salaries are going way up, rent's going way up, all the supplies are going up. I mean, there are things that we do in the office that we get reimbursed lower than the thing costs, not including our time. It's like, there's just, there's just, and you can't, I mean, we ask them, you know, they'll increase whatever, but they don't care. They just like, no, no, we're not going to do it. You know, and there's no way that doctors are going to survive, especially on their own, if, if that doesn't change, because how can you be getting paid $50 or $70? I mean, you can go to like a a veterinarian, or you can go to wherever, like it's going to be much more expensive than, than, than they get much more than we do. You can go to a naturopathic doctor. I've been, you know, naturopathic doctor, like a chiropractor, and I pay them more than I get paid <laughs> by insurance. It's, and, and we take the good insurance. That's not even like the ones where they don't pay that, you know, even what we get. It's like, it's not, it's not functional anymore. There's just no way. When I first started practice in the mid eighties, used to be about 70% of physicians were in private practice, I believe. And now it's probably less than 30%. And it's not just the insurance companies that are squeezing the private practitioners out too. It's it's the um, the regulations that are doing it as well. I mean, the fact that you have to have an EH electronic system in order to bill an insurance company. And if you're one doctor, it costs the same as if you're a group of six doctors or an HMO, you know, a large HMO, you can have your own EHR system. The, you know, the individual regulations that, that, that even calling in prescriptions now, I know in California, it's, you can't do it anymore. It's really hard to do it. Everything has to be done electronically. And if you're, you know, if you're on a hike on a Saturday and someone needs a prescription and either you, and you don't have good reception on your phone, you can't just call the pharmacy when you get back to your car. You have to go online and do it. It's not easy to do that when you're a solo, when you're a solo. They're just making it harder. And they're coming out with more and more things about speaking out and, you know, about Assembly Bill 2098. Bliss, you mentioned something earlier about some other bill. What was that about? Yeah, I was wondering, well, I was told that pediatricians now have to log all of their patients into a system so in, in California. Cali- in California, yes. So you have to, all the shots have to go into the California system, which was, I mean, pretty much everybody did that anyways. I mean, they, they all go into the, the generalized system, you know, that's, that's that the EMRs all connect to it, but now you, you have to, like there were, there were some offices where they were still on paper and those kind of things. So they, they probably didn't do it, but I think that just goes along with the, with the system. But yeah, I mean, it's it's just there. There's all these things that you have to do for like different lab work, and it, it's a lot of bureaucracy. It makes it just makes it harder and harder and harder to do and, it. And and none, of, none of it has been ever been shown to improve patient outcome or anything. So it's not about safety and it's not about quality of care. It's about bean counting and about you know controlling what comes next. I guess. Yeah, I, I think it's about centralizing information and centralizing a system. And I, I see the the push in every way to kind of pushing small offices out and trying to build, you know, mega corporation, you know, Kaiser like systems where it's, I mean, they've worked, I mean, they, they function and, and you get care, but you just, you get, you know, it's hard, it's hard to spend more than three minutes with your doctor. Sure. You get you know only a certain level of care, but they want, they want efficiency and, and ease. And like these, you know, small doctors are like, eh, they, like they just don't care. I think their definition of efficiency and my definition, maybe your definition is probably different. I, you know, when I get a patient who'd been seen at Kaiser for her pregnancy, her prenatal record could be 170 pages long. It's not efficient and it's not necessarily 
It's, it's more about control. It's more about being able to, they can't control the rogue independent physician and they can't tell you how to practice or what to do. But if you're under the auspices of a big company, they can. And so everybody right. gets, everybody's on an algorithm. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we talk about that on the podcast all the time. We don't even have to go there. I think you and I are probably in sort of agreement that you have yeah, much yeah. more independence than if you had a boss. Agreed. And, and I just think they also, they know exactly what they can, they know what their costs are going to be. And it's really easy to kind of amortize that along a big, a big group of people. And they follow the exact same rules and everybody does it versus, you know, the, the rogue doctor who wants to order like the actual test you need for your patient <laughs> kind of thing. And it's like, well, you know, we don't want to cover that. Well, but you know, what you were talking about in the very beginning about, you know, that what we really need in order to make our children more healthy is to pay attention to what they're eating and lowering stress and trying to figure out what we can do about the toxins that are in our environment. And this and the, the general thing that you guys were just talking about don't go hand in hand. And so if we're really going to make a change, we have to be able to change that system and really bring back in individualized care with doctor patient relationship that is built on trust and is built on, you know, being able to, to talk about what is needed rather than just like you were saying, handing out this stuff like candy. And that's, that's what I feel when I go to a traditional doctor, I feel like there is no individualization of care. And I usually go in knowing exactly what I need from them rather than going to a doctor to actually get, you know, their opinion, because I feel like so, so often they're not even really paying attention to anything outside of just that, let me get this done within three minutes. And I think what you said was very eye-opening about like, if you go to a clinic, they're just covering their ass, which is one of the reasons why they might just give you, you know, the same reason why an OB would lean towards doing a C-section because they're not going to get sued if they are doing a C-section versus somebody who's just giving antibiotics to also cover their ass. It's just right. a shame. And, yeah. And, and I mean, any doctor that understands liability, I mean, the way that it works is you have to, you have to do what's the standard of care, right? Whatever, whatever, whatever is considered shit. standard. Which is shit. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, it might be, right? But whatever, whatever your organization has deemed as the standard of what you should be doing for whatever situation, that's what you're going to get either, you know, if you're going to get sued, you're either going to win or lose based on whether you did that or not, right? And so it makes it very tough because there are a lot of things that go outside of that, especially when you're talking about a specific individual and that's where the individualized care comes in. And, and that's just one other part of the system where it just makes it, it tough because you talk about a doctor who works in urgent care, for example, they're just going to do whatever the standard of care is every time. Cause it just makes it easier. It make, makes it easier to do. It's, it's just, it's a big problem. I mean, there's so many, there's so many ways and, and, and big things that are much you know, way beyond what any one person can do. But, but if we don't change these things in the long run, then the system's just going to fall apart. It's already falling apart, but it can be done. It can be different. I mean, doctors used to what they walk around with their bag and go to people's homes and, you know, they, they would spend however much we time. Still like, do. That's what a doctor's job was, right? <laughs> That's what a doctor's job was. We still do that. Yeah. I yeah. That. In our model. Yeah. But, I, I but, still do sometimes, but yeah, I mean, under, under the guidance of the current leadership, whether it's the American Academy of Pediatrics or universities or whatever else. I mean, you're saying they set the standard of care, but look what their standard of care has brought us. As you said earlier, the rates of autism, asthma, obesity, chronic diseases have skyrocketed under their, um, right. their rule. Well, and, and that's where I think that 
it's a big problem, right? It's not to say that that they, you know, to, to badmouth anybody or to say anything bad about any organization. It's just that we have we have had a model of medicine that was built in a way, especially back hundreds of years ago, that was built for infectious disease and and all of that stuff. And and when they were building these models, it really didn't have anything to do with chronic disease because a lot of it didn't even exist then. And and now there are a lot of new problems and a lot of new things that need to be done and bigger things that need to be changed in a society that's way different than when it started. And there's not a lot of recognizing of that. And a lot, and there's very minimal recognizing of the failure of medicine in these aspects, right? It's not a failure in all aspects. I mean, we have amazing medications that can save your life and cures for cancer and technologies that can save. So there's a lot of good things that have come from medicine too. It's not a completed total failure, like medicine's just falling apart. But I think that there are, there are areas that medicine absolutely is is not doing that great in or failing in general, and they're not being recognized. And then when you speak about them or you talk about doing different things or you do different things, then you run into an issue because that's not what's considered standard of care or it's not what's considered the normal. And it's like, oh, that's misinformation or whatever, whatever you want to call it. It's like that, that's what's coming, you know, kind of on the on the outskirts. But but that's what is actually working, right? That's that's what actually people go, and that's why they go outside the medical model to do those things. And medicine needs to. I don't know, get a little bit more humble, maybe. And why, and, why and, do you th- why do you think they why do you think they don't? Because they don't I mean, if you could simple in a simple answer, because I know that we could talk about this for the whole rest of the podcast. But but you, you see it. Listen, I see it. Our listeners see it. They don't see it, though. They don't know. That's is that why. because they're in their box and they only see yeah. the four walls of their box? Is that if it? you only work in a hospital and you only see your four walls, your, your, your the walls that you're working in and you know ever see integrative medicine and you never see it working and you don't even know what it is. And the only things that you know about integrative medicine are the woo-woo practitioners that give, you know, like magical potions that theoretically can cure people. And that's what you hear. Then you think it's all crazy. But when a, I don't know, let's say a patient with some sort of, I don't know, seizure disorder goes to some place and then takes some supplements and it gets better and they go back to the neurologist and they haven't had seizures and they have to take their medication. That neurologist might be like, whoa, what is this? You know, like it definitely happens, right? And I'm not saying that you shouldn't take your medication and go somewhere else. If, you know, but the point is like, I think it, it takes seeing it actually working. We have an Ayurvedic practitioner in our, in our office and, you know, he tells me all the time stories where he works a lot of cardiologists because he does a lot of work with uh, obesity and hypertension and that kind of stuff and also with gut issues. But he'll work with sometimes he'll help people that couldn't be helped in the medical model to the point where some of the practitioners now send him patients because he's been able to help them in ways that they have never helped them. So I think it's about seeing it. I think, I think that's the simple answer to your questions. It's not that they wouldn't be open to it if it didn't work. I don't think doctors wouldn't be open to, hey, take this supplement. It will cure your patient if they had evidence that it would work and they see that it would work, it just, they don't have the evidence that they find respectable and they don't see it working and they never tried it. But if they did, yeah. I think they would be more open to it. I think, I think what you said is, is you said it really well. And, and for me, like you said, that young physicians, medical students, they're very enthusiastic. They're very aware that things aren't maybe the way they're supposed to be. And it's kind of like clay, you know, they're very much like clay, but after a period of time, clay becomes hardened. Mm-hmm. And once you become hardened and you're out in that world and raising your head up to say something is going to get you in trouble or, or you, or you, or you have this thing where you become part of the mass formation and you, you give, you give into the collective because it's just makes you feel good because you're surrounded by people who are like-minded. You, you stop with your, you lose that individuality. You lose that challenge challenging that questioning. It just, it just happens because, because as you said, our colleagues are not, bad people. I mean, there's bad people in every profession and everything, but they're not bad people. 
they're good people who want to do good things, but they're stuck in a in a system that is, to me, rotten from the core, and it's probably not redeemable. Yeah, and the way that things are going, it, it's hard. I mean, but you you also look at like the satisfaction ratings. I mean, it's not high, right? It's not like doctors are in general happy. I mean, suicide rates are very high in the profession, you know, it's, it's not, it's not moving in a good direction where you could be like, Oh yeah, just doctors are really happy with the way things are going. No, I don't, I don't think most people are happy with being a, fa- a cog in a factory wheel. I, I think most people get that. It's just, that's what you do. And it's, it's really hard to break out of that. And it's certainly hard to speak out against it. Right. I mean, especially now, <laughs> you know, it's, it's very, there are certain things you can talk about and certain things you can, I mean, you can talk about whatever you want, but I guess at the end of the day, but you know, they're going to, they will come after you for talking about certain things. And then that's, you know, they just, that has to change first. I mean, there, there has to be more protection, I think, to being able to speak your mind within reason. And, and as long as you can kind of back it up with some reasonableness and not breaking any laws with what you're saying, then, you know, we're not going to have big changes in, in medicine before people who want to see change can actually describe what changes they would like to see and then allow open discussion. doesn't mean you have to do it, but you have to at least be open to discussion about it. And right now it's very rare to even be able to have any discussion on the controversial topics. It's just like, you're wrong. You're wrong. Don't talk about it. We're actually going to, we're take away your license. So let's talk a little yeah. bit about solutions for, like you said at the very beginning, you want to set up kids for success from day one. Mm-hmm. And you said the two main things are nutritional things and probably toxins. So if you had a new couple coming into you for an interview when they're still pregnant and they've got a good practitioner, say they're seeing bliss, <laughs> okay? And uh, so they're very healthy in their pregnancy and they're doing all the right things. Uh, how do you counsel them to avoid the toxins in the world? And also as far as nutrition for their baby, obviously I know you support breastfeeding, but can you tell us a little bit about what kind of advice you might give to a young couple? Yeah, to me, it's really starting the discussion around understanding how important the choices that you make on an everyday basis are. You can't avoid toxins and you can only eat whatever food is is around, but having an understanding that you eat the wrong thing one day, okay, it's not the end of the world, but if you feed your kid food that's devoid of nutrients and filled with toxins every single day, or you spray the same chemical in your house every single day, that adds up over time. And that's going to lead you to a place where your kid has a chronic disease. I mean, that's just where we're at at this point. So to me, it's just getting them to understand that, you know, start with breastfeeding if you can, you know, not everybody can breastfeed, but you know, we should always be supporting it if you can, because there's nutritional value there that you just can't get anywhere else. But then, you know, once you get past that point where you're talking about starting food, you need to be making your own food. You have to be buying actual things that are words that are food around, you know, outside of the grocery store. You know, if you want it, it's great. Plant a garden, make some of your own food, teach your kids how to you know, grow things. You need to read every single label. That's the number one tip I give everybody. Should never buy any food ever without reading the label. You should never again buy any food without reading the label. You have to know what's in there. If it's a long chemical word, it's not good for you. If it's sitting on the shelf for a long time, it can't be good for you. If you pick something off of a tree, how many days does it last? It's like three, four five days. You know, if you get something in the grocery store, how old is it? Right. Especially if it's in a box and it's in, in plastic and whatever. I mean, yeah, that, you got to get some food and you have to do whatever you can. But the more that you can buy real food and feed your kids that real food and actually cook it, at least, you know, what the ingredients are. And it, it's still not perfect because the only way it's going to be more perfect is if we actually get local farms and gardens and everything locally. But you do the best that you can right now. And that's to at least get healthiest food you can at the grocery store. So I think that's a big one. And then just, just being mindful of all the things that you buy for your kids. Do you need, do you need to buy them the crib that has 
the Wi-Fi and the moving and the Bluetooth? And do you want your kids sleeping in that for 12 hours a day? You know, do you need that? Or can you just get a regular, a regular old crib? Do you, do you want to buy them clothes that are you know, sprayed in flame retardants or do you buy them clothes that are just, uh, you know, just cotton or wool? Do you, you know, what sheets are you buying? What do you, what are you washing their clothes in? Just all of these things, everything that you think about, you know, can you clean the floor with just vinegar and water? Or do you need, you know, exactly. Do you need to spray it down with 99% antibacterial killing, whatever, right? All of those things, again, it adds up. And if you start thinking in a way where you're making conscious decisions, then those are the kids that tend to be healthier. And I see it. I mean, most of the kids in my practice are very healthy because they live a conscious life. And the there's almost no kids almost no obesity in my practice, like basically zero, you know, maybe a couple of kids that are a little bit overweight, but very minimal as compared to before, because, and it's not because I'm doing it. Most of them are coming here and they're conscious. And that's what I think is really the difference. If you are conscious, then you will see it happen. And you will teach your kids from day one about healthy eating and about a healthy lifestyle and about what it means to be healthy. And then they will learn those skills and take it into their life. Yeah. And your type of practice probably attracts that, that, type of patient anyway. Yeah. I think it just attracts people that are already health conscious. They, they, they seek us out and find it, but I am encouraged because it seems like it's getting more and more common. I mean, it's, we're turning down people left and right. Like can't keep up with people applying to the office anymore. There's so many people. And it's, it's, that's a good thing. I mean, that's people that are seeking out something different, but it also should show you what's going on in people's minds that they're just frustrated with the system and they're looking for other alternatives. But just the fact that you're thinking in that way, that's a huge step up. It makes a big difference. I'm, I'm very positive. I've seen it. I've seen enough of it now to know that it makes a big difference. Well, congratulations on your success. I, <laughs> I, I remember when you started your practice and I'm so glad to hear that, that people are finding you and getting the wonderful care that you're offering. I noticed that you didn't mention organic. Is that something that you feel like is important when you're choosing your food? Yeah, I, I think that you want, I mean, organic is good in the fact that it's not sprayed in pesticides, right? So I think that's one step in the right direction. But the problem that I have, not with organic in general, but just with the labeling is that it's all BS. <laughs> you know, it's like, you might be ne- right next to a place that's not organic, so it's there. Or organic just means it wasn't sprayed yeah, in pesticides, but it doesn't, wasn't sprayed with a chemical like eight seconds later, right? You know, you, you go to a store now, you go to Whole Foods or whatever, and you look at the apples and they're all super shiny. And it's like, why? Well, it's because they were sprayed in wax and all sorts of crap to keep them shiny and to keep them from going bad. So it, just because it says organic, it's tricking people into thinking that it's good. And I guess it's better than not being organic, right? But but it's 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 all just words, you know? It's like, oh, BPA-free. So they use some other BP, whatever, right? And it's probably worse for you. It's, it's, it's buzzwords instead of actual health. And mm-hmm. actually healthy food would be picked off of something and you'd eat it and it wouldn't be sprayed with anything. But yeah, so... Your own garden is the best if if we could do that. But yeah, we could do it. I mean, it's not like that's very practical for everybody, but that is yeah. the reality of where we should be. But it is actually practical that we could have a society that starts to build more farmers markets and local and local, you know, grocery stuff and maybe on the roofs of grocery stores and start growing stuff and selling at those grocery stores. And I mean, there's so much cool technology where you can you can have farms in parking lots now. You know, you know I just like, bought a book because I now have a homestead. I just bought a book on, on your backyard farm mm-hmm. and I'm going to start yeah, when spring comes, when spring comes, I'm going to do some planting. Yeah. And, so. and it's actually pretty easy. I mean, some of it's hard, but like a lot of it's actually very, very easy to do. You know, you can just put something, not everything's going to grow easily, but, but if you, you know, just put some soil and some, 
wood and you make a little area and you just plant things in there that are good for that. Some of it's just going to grow. It just needs water. I mean, even if you're lazy, you know, just get a, get, get a, get somebody to come in and put a watering system in. So it, it waters it twice a day and then, then you're good to go, you know, and it's just whatever will grow or grow. I mean, I put a, a passion fruit thing in the ground a year and a half ago and it's like huge. Now I don't do anything. It just, just grows. We have a grapefruit tree. We have some lemon trees and it's, it's not like it's any work. <laughs> you just have to put it in. <laughs> Yeah. So before we, before we wrap up, just want to do what's called what I would call a lightning round with you. And I want to throw out like a, a topic and have you give like your thought on that. Sure. Like the first one, um, when, when a baby has a fever, do you, do you always treat it? Do you never treat it? What do you, and then if you do treat it, because we've always talked about that fever is the body's mechanism for killing whatever's attacking it. And so we don't necessarily want to treat fevers. But when I was a kid, the minute you had a fever, parents gave you like, the worst thing they could possibly give you back then, which was Tylenol. But I wanted, so what's your thought on fevers in babies and, and, and treatment for that? Yeah. Okay. Great question. So two answers to that question, because it depends on the age. So if you're a baby under say two months, but especially under one month, that's a big deal for a baby in the medical system because babies get sick really, really quickly. And a fever could mean something much more serious and they get really, really sick, really, really fast. So in general, for a baby under two months, but especially under six weeks or, or one month, yes, you're going to go get checked and they're going to do a full workup to make sure that you're not super sick. But I think your question is more to children over two months. So pretty much, you know, any older ish kid, toddlers, whatever with a fever. So to me, I don't think you should treat it most of the time. I, I think that a fever is your body's normal way to fight off infections. Raising temperature for a reason is trying to kill off the, the bacteria or the virus. And it is increasing your metabolism to help you fight off that infection. So in general, for any moderate fever, I, I don't think you should be treating it. Certainly not under 102, I would say, for sure. If you're getting, you know, 103, 104, 105, it's getting on the higher end. But even still, if they're pretty happy, then you don't necessarily need to do any medication. I think personally, medication should be used if they're super uncomfortable, if you need it to help them sleep, that kind of thing. I think sleep is important for them when they're sick. So if they're really fussy with super high fever and they're miserable and they can't sleep, then maybe that's a good time. But I would say in general, you should not use a fever reducer unless you feel like you really need to. And you certainly should minimize using it. I don't think just because you have like a 101, 102, it, it makes any reason to do a fever reducer. I, so, so my what, and what would you use to reduce fever? What would you use? No, I mean, so, if you say it was 103, 104, and you wanted to reduce it, what would you do? Oh, if you want, I mean, a warm, a warm bath, washcloths, uh, there's homeopathics that you could use, like, like um, belladonna, that kind of stuff. But you don't, you don't need to, I mean, are you saying like it, as a medication? Like between yeah, so giving children's Tylenol or children, oh, actually, we don't, we don't, but I mean, children's Advil, children's aspirin. It goes back and forth. Yeah, every every few years, it you know, kind of goes back and forth. I think people have moved more to ibuprofen right now than, than to Tylenol. There's you know more more bad press around acetaminophen these days and long term stuff. But I think in general, if you're using it one time, is probably doesn't make too much of a difference. But I think ibuprofen is more more popular at the very moment. Okay. What about vitamin K? <laughs> vitamin K. I would say for vitamin K that the it's it's for clotting, right? For for babies, and I think that. There used to be more uh, brain bleeds and vitamin K deficient bleeding. And so that's why there is a recommendation. I always talk to families about, you know, the, the pros and the cons of it. I mean, there's certainly a little bit of risk there. And the problem with the risk is that it's such a huge risk if you do have the bleeding, right? So I think yes. that you really want to want to minimize that. I don't, you know, personally, I don't force people to do anything. But I think that of the things that are offered for a new baby, that's probably the most important of them. If you're going to do any of them, that that's the one that usually what people would do. Uh, 
yeah so I, I think that it's 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 i don't remember what the exact numbers are, but i feel like it was like one in ten thousand babies used to have bleeding back in the day that number it's about one in 16 it's about one in sixteen thousand. so one in ten thousand is close yeah yeah so it's not it's not like a huge risk but a brain bleed in a baby is a huge deal so i think that if you can lower that risk it's not unreasonable and and that's what the recommendation is anyway so i mean that's what okay. the cdc recommendation is i guess <laughs> See, we're not big fans of the CDC. I yeah, I know, I get it. I know, I know, but I, you know, that's what the theoretical recommendation. No, I got that. I got that. What about newborn screen? Newborn screen, pretty, so, pretty good test. That's the the one that checks for cystic fibrosis and. Yeah, I think that one is totally reasonable. I mean, you do catch things every now and again, so I I don't. There's minimal risk other than like it's annoying to get a little little skin prick, but it's. I think it's less important these days because a lot of parents do prenatal screening. So I I think that. There are certainly some things that it can catch it. And the reason why they do the prenatal screen is to catch those things where it could be very severe if you don't catch it. So I have definitely seen things being caught even in my career. So it's not, it's certainly not useless. If you've done a full prenatal screen, is it as important? Probably not, but there's still things I think on that, that you catch that you wouldn't necessarily catch in the prenatal screen. Okay. And this last one is not related to pediatrics so much, but just because I rarely get another MD to talk to about this sort of thing. You concerned at all about blood products and the spike protein? Like we have people writing us about, should I get Rogam? Uh, you know, even if they're Rh negative and their baby turns out to be Rh positive. A lot of our clients are declining, like the twenty-eight week Rogam, but because they're afraid of stuff like that. But there's no data on it. I don't think there's going to be any data coming out. Do you have any any thoughts at all? You could just say I don't have any thoughts on that. And... No, I, I do have thoughts. I just I don't I don't know. I mean, I I think that the more that we're learning, the the worse it's getting. So I, I that, but I don't know if if that in blood products correlates in any way with any problems with it with the person who gets the blood transfusion. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it works that yeah, way. Okay. Well, Is I mean, that... that's a good, that's a fair answer because we don't know. But so I don't think we know. I, I think it's it's a reasonable concern, just like when they were first giving blood products and you know antibodies and crossover and potential problems that that could have. I think it's a new. Is something that's new in there because it's you know it comes from a new product. So how that's going to affect people, especially to a different person, then I don't know. I, I feel like that kind of stuff it breaks down over time and probably it's not going to be as effective and not going to cause as many issues. So I, I think it's probably not going to be a huge concern, is my guess, but I don't know. I mean, I'm not smart enough to know. And I certainly don't think if anyone was to tell you that they're giving you a truthful answer. We have yeah, no idea. I think that your last statement was clearest statement of all is that first of all they're probably not going to look and second of all even if they did find something how do we know that it's truthful right and, and it's hard i mean that goes back to the you know with anything else it's, it's really hard with the way that we do research to correlate anything long term i mean if you were you know for example if you were to get a blood product transfusion today and then you had a heart attack tomorrow okay you can like baby sets to do with that but how do you know if you have a problem in six months whether that was from the the transfusion or whether that was just going to happen to you in general. And that's the problem with basically everything when it comes to a medical intervention is like, Oh, it's not from that, but maybe it is, <laughs> you know, maybe it is. I mean, you have to like, at some point there, you know, the more correlation, the more that you see, the more that you recognize, then, you know, maybe you need to identify that maybe it is, but it, it's a hard argument because it's very just consistently like, well, you know, it was, it was a year later. So I don't know. <laughs> it's it's a enough. tough argument to beat, you know, unless you had to do really good long-term research where you can actually, um, stratify things and, and, and kind of, um, figure out what, what, you know, by eliminating and, and doing, you know, double blind control trials, if you actually do it properly, you can figure it out, but it's, it's not an easy thing to do over the long term. For me, just hearing it, hearing that from another doctor makes me feel better because you're right. It's so uncertain. Bliss, did you have anything? 
any more memes or anything that you wanted to talk about? No, you know, the only thing I thought about earlier when you guys were talking about politics and stuff, and uh, the way to handle all these problems is that I think probably we should have hippies be the ones who are running the whole thing, because we've been saying, <laughs> we've been saying this forever, that we need to be talking about our food and, and what we put in our bodies and being a little bit more conscientious about all of that. And I think that if we had taken over in the 70s, we'd probably be in a lot better shape. Yeah, I mean, even speaking of politics, I think that's just a funny thing to talk about before we go, because, you know, people talk about me being political or whatever. And I'm like, I'm Canadian, so I can't even vote. I'm not political in any way. I'm not on either side. And health is not a side. You know, I've even got, I was on Epoch True. Times or whatever, because they wanted to interview me for something. And people were like badmouthing me for that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, how do we get to a point where as a doctor, you can't talk on a certain media places like what Republican kids don't need health discussions as well. <laughs> if, if like CNN wants to have me on or something, I'll go on too. It's like, I don't care what like the political affiliations are of a place. If you're talking about like obesity, it's a thing that makes, it's not political. Like it doesn't make any freaking, I mean, it's political in the sense that the way that things, you know, the rules are, but it, it's not a political thing. It's a health thing. Like it doesn't make any freaking difference what, what the media source is. You're talking to parents about taking care of their kids. And Absolutely. I'll go on any media source anywhere. I don't care. Like, what does it make any difference? Oh, man, well, thanks, <laughs> thanks for coming to talk to us today. We really appreciate hearing your perspective. And again, so happy for your success and your, your baby and everything that's been going on in your life. Keep fighting the fight and keep having the courage to speak out against what's not true, because that's what we need. We need Thank people you. who are courageous and we really um, appreciate you being here with us today. Thanks for having me and you guys keep up what you're doing. I know you, I know you guys are not, not quiet on stuff either. So <laughs> we try not to be. <laughs> thanks Joel. Right, thanks, Joel, you. you can drop off. You can drop off. We're going to, Bliss and I are going to wrap up. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye. So. So. <laughs> what do you think? I mean. I think there was a lot of good, good topics of conversation. I think it's pretty obvious that, you know, not talking about vaccines and being part of what's going on with kids, kind of the elephant in the room. So, um, yeah, for our listeners, just know that Bliss and I talked about this beforehand because uh, doctors in California are in a tough position. Yeah. And, you know, I wanted to talk about masking and its effect on kids learning and stuff like that with him. And he really didn't want to go there. And I, Totally understand it. I mean, I know everybody who's listening knows how he feels about it. You can tell he just can't, he just can't. And he's not, he's not a coward at all. He speaks freely, but he, you know, he's a solo practitioner. Yeah. And nobody wants to be investigated by the tyrannical medical board. And the thing he said about 25% of pediatricians have, you know, gone out of business. And I, you know, to me, the writing is on the wall, especially here in California. They just are getting so pressured. The best most individualized, holistic doctors just feel like they are fighting a losing battle. And so I respect his, what he needs to do. Um, and I'm glad that he came on. And I think that it's pretty obvious what he's talking about in terms of preventative care is also a really big part of it, but we can't step over the fact that some of this could probably has to do with vaccines as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's like the 800 pound gorilla, but it, but the other right. thing too, is I, I got a, I got a text message yesterday from a dad of a twin that I, that I took care of several years ago and the twins are about to go to preschool now. And he asked me if I could write a medical exemption for them. Mm. And of course, first of all, I'm not 
a pediatrician, so they're not my patients. So I, you know, it's bad enough that you, you know, you, you can't really write a medical exemption for somebody that you don't have a chart on that you haven't, that's not in your practice. But secondly, even if they were in my practice, he said, do you know anybody that will do it? And I said, no. And that's unbelievable to me that, well, it's not unbelievable. That's the wrong word. It's totally <laughs> believable, but it's, it's just unconscionable to me that doctors, even if kids had a reaction to a vaccine in the past that doesn't quite meet the brain damage seizure threshold, they're not, doesn't, can't get an exemption in California anymore, or no one's going to write it because they know that every exemption that's written is going to be investigated by, by somebody. And yeah. that tyrannical uh, behavior is not about health. We have to reiterate that over and over again. None of this stuff that they're doing is about health for the individual or support for the people that are actually doing the work, the doctors and nurses, lab techs, phlebotomists, janitors, all, you know, everybody that works in a hospital, people that run the hospital, you're not their concern. And the people in the beds are, are even less so in some situations. Their PR departments will make it very clear that, oh, we're all about thriving and we're all about you doing really, really well. But that's not that's their PR department. The PR department, it's like the right hand doesn't really know what the left hand is doing. Or yeah, maybe they yeah, do and they yeah. do it anyway. But he pointed out a lot of issues and he did it quite well. And I'm really glad that we had him on uh, mm -hmm. because it's nice to hear that from another professional who is in, you know, in the pediatric world, because, our, you know, mm -hmm. as, as we said at the very beginning, and he said it, he uh, complimented midwives and the fact that you guys are quite good at taking care of newborns and in the first few weeks of life. And my profession is not. Uh, which is why pediatricians are so prevalent. And that's why I asked the question, does a healthy newborn or not even a healthy toddler need to go to the doctor? I thought that that was, his answer was enlightening and it's good. And he, one of the things he said was, yeah, because you know, parents can get their questions answered. So it's yeah. almost, it's almost more for parents. Yeah. For guidance, with, but yeah. you have to be with somebody who you trust, right? Because you Always. want somebody who's aligned with your values. If you're the kind of person who doesn't want to take antibiotics and wants to do things as natural as possible. If you go into a traditional conventional doctor, you're not going to get what you want and you're going to feel frustrated. So you have to really try and find providers that are aligned with how you see healthcare. And most of the people out there, as you just mentioned, are not really interested in our health. So a lot of people that I know are just are figuring it out on their own. People are becoming much more informed and educating themselves because they know that the system is really not meeting them where they need it to. Right. And Dr. Warsh sounds a lot like us. I know. Uh, so, so similar. Totally. Yeah. So it's really, really good. But you can really see the, the vulnerabilities that medical practitioners are, are under these days. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll see where that goes. That can't, it cannot stand, can't, can't survive. It will collapse upon its own weight. At some point, the question is how much damage will be done before it collapses. Exactly. Well, great to see you. Hope you have a great day. Great to see you. How how was your day in Bali today? <laughs> <laughs> so listen, have a very safe trip. Thank we'll you. have to figure out the the time difference. You'll be yep. you're nine hours, well, you're 10 hours behind me a day ahead. We've been working on that this morning. We tried to figure that out. Okay. So, anyway, we'll figure be it safe, out. be well. And thank you. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 